0: Hi, it's Chad Griffiths. I'm the host of the Industrial Real Estate Show, and I'm glad you're here. After you listen to it, please consider leaving a review on our Apple or Spotify page and check out any more episodes to see how you can learn more about the industrial real estate market. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I am very excited for another week's episode of the Industrial Real Estate Show and a bit of an interesting format this week, as you can see that I'm actually in an airport. And I just love doing these shows so much that uh, instead of having to reschedule with Larry, I just Figured I'd come to the airport early, find as quiet of a location as I could, uh, so we get to spend the time with Larry, and uh, I I think you're really going to get some value hearing him chat. Uh, We were originally connected on LinkedIn, uh, and then a mutual friend of ours actually uh, connected us again to do a podcast interview, and I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Uh, Larry's a a top-producing broker out of Fort Lauderdale in Florida, works with CBRE, and he's just a great value-add guy who's uh, happy to chat about any number of topics. So any questions that you have for Larry as we're going through these, uh, please put it in the chat. And there will be some background noise on my end, so I apologize for that. Uh, Wyatt and I will do our best to keep me muted uh, when Larry's talking uh, so we can keep the focus right on Larry. Uh, so with the intro out of the way, please to bring on Larry. Larry, good to see you, my friend. What's
1: going on? Thanks for having
0: me. Well, thanks for putting up with me sitting in an airport, but I I didn't want to reschedule this because I've had this marked on my calendar for a while and I've been really looking forward to it. So hopefully the the background noise isn't uh, too distracting and we can just have a a fun and uh, informative discussion. Yeah, you got it. Uh, so kicking it off, I, uh, I love I hearing how people got into industrial real estate because it's not something that you do on career day when you're in junior high or high school. It's, it's something a lot of people find out about later in life. Right. So I'd love to hear how you got into industrial real estate uh, and then how long you've been doing it now uh, currently at CB.
1: Sure. Absolutely. No, thank you for the question. Thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. Um, so you know, for me, it was a little unique um, because my family had been in real estate. My dad was in real estate. My grandmother and grandfather were in real estate on both sides of my family. My uncles and aunts are in real estate. My brothers and cousins are in real estate. So like, it's a family affair with the Janays. Uh, so I've always been around it since I'm a little kid, five years old. I always knew I was going to be in real estate and wanted to be in real estate. I didn't know what exactly I was going to do, but I knew I'd be in the field. So. For me, it was always real estate, which is a little unique. As you said, people tend to fall into it as a second and third career. And, you know, sometimes, you know, they do really, really great and sometimes, you know, just average and sometimes it just doesn't work at all. But for me, it was from the start. Uh, I like to say, I was born with a hammer in my hand. So. Um, I've been around it forever. My uncle owns a lot of small bay industrial real estate. His name is Ben Janae down here in South Florida. My brother also owns a lot of small bay real estate um, and has done a bunch of retail and stuff like that in the past. And then I have other family members that also invest very heavily uh, in commercial real estate. So for me, it was really um, right around when I got out of college, I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life. And I had always had jobs during the summer and odd jobs and always around real estate, but, you know, didn't really ever know exactly what I wanted to do. So I started in residential, which is the easiest to get into. My cousin, Anna, was kind enough to let me rent her a house, which I'm sure I did an awful job. (laughs) That's one of my first deals. I think I made like fifteen hundred bucks on that commission and I never felt so rich in my life um and so from there i just kind of asked friends and families for for work and to help me and i got a few more gigs here and there and then one day i worked into my i walked into my dry cleaners and he was a really cool guy ex cop from new york city real like tough dude there was like a a a sign on the wall, I remember, that had a picture of like a guard dog and a gun pointing at you. It was like, there's nothing here worth losing your life over kind of a thing. And he was just a a really cool guy. So I asked him, I said, do you need any more space? You know, I've been coming here for two years. Like, you're awesome. I love this dry cleaners. Long story short, I I ended up renting him um, a retail location in Opera Tower, which was built by Tibor Hala, which is one of like the OG developers in South Florida going back 50 years. Um, and I, and I leased that space and I never did another residential deal after that. It was my first commercial deal. I fell in love immediately. And then eventually I kind of like wandered through the market and landed in industrial working with my uncle, Ben, who was kind enough to give me a job when I really needed one, um, and kind of taught me the ropes for a small bay industrial. And from there I joined CBRE and I've been here now 11 years and it's been a fantastic ride.
0: Uh, that's that's a very cool story and funny enough I started in residential as well uh, that was back in 2004 I did a year residential as well not sure what I wanted to do I, I just buying and selling some properties and went into residential for a year because that just seems easy right everybody just naturally can can get into that uh, but I switched over uh, a year later so in 2005 I joined uh, brokerage and same company ever since actually because it. It is, it's one of those strange industries where if you don't know anything about it, it's hard to even get insight into what the market's like, what, the, what a career in brokerage is like, things you need to know, things you need to do. Uh, and that was kind of why I was just so excited to talk to you about this is that I was hoping that uh, between you and whatever little amount I could add in as well, I'd, I'd love to just pull back the curtain on industrial brokerage and talk about what are some of the things that uh, brokers would need to know? What are some of the things that brokers should be prepared for? Uh, how can you be successful in this business and really just have it as a, a conversation a, 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 a kind of like a career highlight day. This could, we could be a traveling roadshow where we go high school to high school and junior high to junior high and actually tell people what industrial brokerage is like. But instead of that, we'll just do it on this podcast. So I, I, before we get into that, and I, and I do want to encourage anyone, any questions uh, that you have for, for Larry uh, or myself, please feel free to put them in. We'll get to as many as we can. Uh, there was one question I want to actually start with before we jump into the rest of that, Larry, uh, and that comes from Neil. Uh, Neil, thanks for joining in the question. What do all the different titles mean in brokerage you've seeing associates, vice president, senior vice president, etc. What's your What's your thoughts on that, Larry?
1: Yeah, so... Um I guess that's important for evaluating the seniority of the professional. You know, my experience just because you have a big title doesn't always mean that you're the best. There's lots of associates and and vice presidents that are unbelievably talented and capable. So I would caution people to just try to focus on the senior vice presidents, executive vice presidents, and chairmen. They're not always the the best in the business, and you got to look for the best team on the field that's well rounded. But uh, in regards to this specific question, um, associate is basically a first-year sort of junior broker. And then as you start moving up the sort of totem pole, vice president, senior vice president, then you get into executive vice president and chairman or vice chairman, depending on the company. Every company has different thresholds, but the way that those titles are allocated to you are, uh, at least at the biggest shops, um, you know, the publicly traded ones, they're allocated by revenue production. So... the the larger amount of revenue that you produce within, call it like a three to five year period, depending on the title, uh, the higher your title will be. So when you get up into that senior vice president, executive vice president, and and vice chairman uh, type roles, those people are massive producers in the top 1% in the world of producers for any company. Um, So extremely hard to do, especially at CBRE, where the thresholds are in my experience, at least much higher than all the other companies uh, to get to those levels. So, um, yeah, it's really, really impressive thing. Um, but don't put all your faith in titles; put it in people.
0: Yeah, well said. I love that. The, that's the person that's a, a lot more important than the title. It's are important. you able? Are you able to give any parameters? Uh, and, and you could be as general as you like here, because I. I I know we don't want to be talking about any sensitive or confidential information around that. But I, I think one thing that, that a lot of people ask is how much money can people make in brokerage? So can you tie anything into what those titles mean? You mentioned that's revenue within three to five years, and maybe you don't need to specifically mention CB, but even just as a, some parameters on what people could expect on some potential uh, revenue that's uh, out there for brokers.
1: Certainly, yeah. I won't speak to any company because honestly, they're changing all the time, so it might not be relevant by the time someone watches this video. Um, And I definitely don't want to disclose any like proprietary or confidential information, so I I certainly won't do that. But I can speak to my own personal experience and experience of people that I've hired and and, uh, have worked with me in the past, or that I know of. So, for me, you know, it was a different time, right? It was like 11 years ago when I got here. The market wasn't the type of market that we have right now. The rents are higher. Um, so thereby the commissions are higher, uh, just naturally. Um, but uh, you know, you can expect in your first year, if you really put your nose to the grindstone and you outwork pretty much everyone around you, you can, you can eke out, you know, I don't know, 30 to 80 grand if you really hit it hard. Um, it's not easy because you don't have anything really. You're starting from scratch. And even if you join a big team, which I say is mandatory, uh, for anyone getting into the business, uh, it's still really, really hard to, to make any money your first year. And you should have um, either some kind of savings or make sure you get a draw or whatever in order to keep you afloat and keep your bills paid during that first year, because it is rough. Um, and then, you know, as you get into your second year, you should be able to pull down, you know, somewhere between, you know, 50 and 80, maybe more, um, depending on what team you're with and how hard you're working. Um, but sort of conservatively you know those are the numbers 30 to 50 your first year in that kind of range and then 50 to 80 your second year um, which I think I did 30 my first year and then and then 50 or 60 my second year and then I got up into the 80s and 90s and eventually started to hit six figures um, after a couple of years so it's you know this business it's like a delayed it's like a delayed system where you're you're building your your pipeline and your relationships and your your um, your opportunities for success you're building all that over time and it, it does take time It takes three to five years to really catch a stride at all um, and then but then once you build it um, it's it's not that it's easy but that you know what you're doing so it's a combination of two things you know what you're doing you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And uh, you have this nice pipeline and you have these clients that hopefully like you and bring you repeat business. So if you can hold on to the deals that you do and keep those relationships while also adding new one, it compounds on itself. So it's not that it gets easier. I think you get smarter um, and there's just more volume. So while, yeah, you could leave some great college and go into Wall Street or you know some private equity firm or whatever and make you know 130 grand a year out of school, which I'm sure people are doing right now, plus bonuses and stuff. You might not do that your first year in real estate, but you'll also be able to make your own hours. Um, you'll build, be building sort of your own kind of thing, your own business within a business, if you will, if you're at a, at a firm like mine. Um, and the long-term is very rewarding and gratifying, uh, both financially uh, and personally. Um, and it's just a different speed. So you you really, you're not, you know, generally you're not at the office at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night working on a merger, you know, of some kind or something weird like that. So it's much lower stress um, and a much better quality of life, I think, than someone, you know, killing themselves in, 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 uh, in uh, New York City.
0: Yeah, it, well said on that. And I, I've always equated it. It's cheesy analogy, but I think it's appropriate. It's like it's a rocket ship trying to get off the ground. And it takes so much fuel and inertia and it takes so much to actually get that ship off the ground. But once it's at cruising altitude and in orbit, it's a lot easier to maintain that trajectory. But it's that getting off the ground that is so cumbersome. And there's so much risk and everything can go wrong in that first launch sequence. But once you're off the ground, it's, it is a lot easier. Uh, are, are you And I'm, I'm not trying to push you to reveal any sensitive or confidential information whatsoever, but are you comfortable perhaps even saying what some top brokers are capable of making in this industry? The
1: nice thing about brokerage and being a 1099 employee and sort of an entrepreneur, if you look at yourself that way, is your earning is unlimited. You literally don't have a cap. So as big and as bad as you can build it, uh, you can do it. So you can, you know, t- I think most top brokers, you know, make into like sort of the mid s- six figures, I think is probably a fair statement. Honestly, I'm not 100% certain, but I, I think that it's probably more or less accurate. But there are brokers who can make millions of dollars a year, um, you know, all around the world from Hong Kong to uh, LA and Miami and New York. So um, it can be done. I've seen it. Um, it takes a long time, it takes infrastructure and a team. Um, and there are some, there are some teams that produce, you know, more revenue than like businesses do and and they're bigger in terms of revenue. So it's, it can be a very lucrative business. If you are really good at what you do, you build a really good team. You have a great culture, you're fair with everyone, you treat everyone well, and you're lucky enough to have great clients, um, who you continue to grow with, um, and you have a diversified business. So, you know, if you do those things and you work for 40,000 hours, you'll do great.
0: Yeah, great point. Uh, interesting. I, I had got to talk to Bob Knackle uh, last week. Oh, sorry. There's a there's a call going over the intercom. Uh, hopefully, that's not too... Uh, okay, good. Uh, so, uh, Bob Knackle, uh, big New York broker, he's done over $20 billion in commercial transactions. So, even if you just take 1% of that, assuming you got a point, and maybe it'd be less because... Uh, there, there's probably some downward pressure when you get into that volume, but even 1%, that's $200 million in fees. Uh, even if you take half of that, it's $100 million in fees. So you're right. There's there's a potential for, it's the thing I actually love about this industry. Now, now there's a baby crying in the background. Uh, the thing I love about this industry is that there's people that can make zero and there's people like Bob who conceivably can be making in the $100 million gross commissions over his career. So it really is the full spectrum of fees out there. Uh, So uh, a question came in from uh, Zach here. Uh, Thanks for the question, Zach. What will the most successful brokers be doing in five years that they're not doing now? That's a great question, Zach. Larry, I'll let you tackle that.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question, Zach. Thank you. Um, So, you know, brokers who the most successful brokers that are currently in the market um, and doing well and have, you know, a great business, what they'll be doing in five years from now, um, I think they'll be fighting with technology, um, and I think the the industry will be so vastly different um, that the business will probably not look the way it looks today. Um, I, you know, it's getting kind of cheeky, but you know, AI is coming. Uh, it, it's here, sort of. its early versions and it's already been massively impactful um i've been watching this for a few years now um and i've been studying it and i've been trying to invest in these companies that are building these these um algorithms really it's not really ai yet um and so i think um i think the the sort of the bottom tier of the business uh, will be sort of eliminated and automated, sort of like the, the smallest 10% of deals or 15% of deals will probably be automated in some fashion, I imagine. Um, but the more complicated transactions will still require um, human involvement and um, sort of that that broker know-how. So I think, you know, I think they'll be fighting technology for for a while. In five years from now, this stuff that's coming out just now is is going to look very different <laughs> and it's going to be way more complex and capable. So I think building a diversified business um, where you can make a living multiple different ways and not just be a sort of one trick pony is probably a very good idea.
0: A yeah, great answer on that. And if I could add something onto that, and I completely agree with how you uh, stated that. I think that there'll be some commoditization of some transactions. And like you said, that could be the bottom 10%, 15%. But there, that, this happens in the industry already, where you have a broker that's doing the bare minimum. They're almost a, a server at a table that just takes the order goes and puts it into the kitchen, brings the food, and they're just running the, the orders back and forth. And there's not a lot of value add that needs to be in that transaction. And you probably could automate it. Because I agree, I, I mean, the technology is either there right now or, or it's in its infancy, where someone can go onto Google, they can search for what they're looking for, they can spit them back a number of properties, it can give send them a code so that they can go and punch it into any of these spaces so that they can go and look at the space themselves. They can say that they like it. AI will auto generate an offer. It'll get sent to the landlord. Like it's it, that's not that futuristic. Uh, as you start breaking it down, and for very simple transactions where a broker isn't necessarily bringing anything more to the table, that could be worrisome. But I agree with you. Complex transactions that take more than one simple tour in need to have somebody guiding them through that process. It's just a level of expertise and it'd be no different than someone having AI draft a legal contract for them and them, them feeling comfortable that that legal contract is going to protect them if something yeah. goes wrong versus hiring a lawyer. So yeah, great answer on that. And, yeah. I, and I, I agree. I, I think that that is going to be really important. Uh, so on on that trend then, what, what do you think brokers need to be Aware of right now, or where would you be directing either new members on your team, or even some of the experienced members, or even yourself? What do you think the focus uh, should be for the next few years, from an industrial broker's standpoint, as well as just trying to integrate all these different systems that are coming?
1: Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, you know, if, if you follow my content and hopefully a lot of people that are watching this or will watch it uh, do, um, you'll know that I tend to repeat, repeat a few really key points, uh, which was, I don't know if he got it from somewhere, but Naval is someone that I follow a lot and I really respect and has taught me so much from afar. Um, and he really hits home when he talks about, for me, he hits home when he talks about leveraging uh, technology, capital, and labor for a mutual benefit. So I'm hyper-focused on that right now. I will continue to be hyper-focused on that years from now. don't think it's going out of fashion. Um, The economy is run on leverage, um, and I'm not talking about debt. I'm talking about leverage of um, money, um, labor, and technology. And with those three things, you could literally scale anything that people want to buy. And I really believe that uh, brokerage teams, and there are many who do this super successfully, um, are are lar- in large part uh, just dudes doing deals is what I like to call it. And they're not really focused on building infrastructure or data management or any kind of like competitive advantage. And again, like I said, there are many who are doing this expertly and I'm, I'm not, I'm just trying. <laughs> Uh, but there are many who are, who have given me the inspiration to really take this on, or at least try to. So I, I'm really focused on trying to build and scale, trying to create a better experience for the customer um, through data, labor, and the use of capital. So we invest a lot in this team every year. We we run you know big salaries, we invest in a lot of technology, um, basically spare no expense for the most part. Our marketing budgets are probably three and four and five X, you know, a lot of our competitors, um, which I'm proud of, I wear that as a badge of honor. I'm excited to invest in my own business and I really want to grow it. I want to scale it. And I want to be able to take people who never thought that they could be successful at this, teach them everything I know, um, get them up to speed and then empower them to become successful and to become, you know, top producers in their own right. And hopefully, we get to keep those people, and they stay on board. Um, and there's some loyalty there, but you know, I really enjoy that. I think it's I think it's scalable, um, and I'm I'm I've already built a pretty decent sized team. We're about 10 people, hopefully going to 12 pretty soon. Um, and I'm going to remain focused on that for a long time. I don't think that's going out of fashion.
0: That's an impressive sized team. Uh, congrats on on that growth. Where, where have you seen 11 years that you've been exclusively in industrial? Where have you seen the market shift in those 11 years? Technology has obviously come a long way. Uh, but what, I, I guess what I'd really love to hear is when you're spending that much more, four to five times what your competitors are in marketing, is that a relatively new phenomenon where you're just trying to get eyes on the properties or trying to bring new business into the team? How has that evolved uh, and what does, how has brokerage evolved even in the 11 years that you've been doing this?
1: Hello, my name is Wyatt Hammond and I am the producer of the Industrial Real Estate Podcast. I'm here to let you know that this episode is being sponsored by Tyler Cobble's Industrial Real Estate Investing course. This course will teach you how to find, fund, and close your first commercial real estate deal, even if you're starting from scratch. It is a self-guided online course that teaches real-world practical principles to succeed in commercial real estate investing. If you're interested in learning more or signing up for the course, you can click the link in the description. Now back to your episode. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, So everyone's gotten a lot younger. Um, I think that's across the board uh, nationally. You know uh brokers have gotten a lot younger asset managers have gotten a lot younger acquisitions people have gotten a lot younger ceos have gotten a lot younger so it's happened across the board and i'm i'm not pointing to any one trend or anything it's just happening i don't know why and i I don't really care to get into the details of it because i don't really understand it but it's gotten a lot younger the market as a whole so that's an interesting trend which actually worked in my favor because i just turned 40 last weekend uh, but my whole career, I've been like hiding my age and like so afraid to tell people that I'm like 30 or 32 or whatever because they wouldn't want to work with me because I wasn't old enough. And, you know, I compete with 60 plus year old people sometimes. Um, it's just kind of awkward when I'm like half their age or whatever um, or, or a quarter of their age or whatever it is. So, you know, now um, I can be honest about my age. You know, I have a little bit of gray hair here, so I kind of might know what I'm talking about sometimes. Um but so that, that's that been an interesting trend that has really worked in, in, in my favor a lot uh, for the most part. And then uh, I think, you know, it's not specific to real estate. It's more macro, but it's changed everything. And you, you can notice it uh, the most kind of in the last two years is the information age. So we have had the internet and all this stuff for a long time, right? But social media really hasn't been around that long. iPhones, you know, not that long either. Um, and, you know, the prevalence of them, has has grown to like a mass scale it's basically got everyone now in the united states um so people can get their information very very quickly now so i think my impression is 10 years ago when uh you know or the last crisis hit everyone kind of knew what was happening but it, the news didn't, the detail of the news, the, 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 the minutiae of the details of the news really didn't travel that fast. And people didn't really know exactly what happened until they started writing books and making movies about it. I feel like right now, everyone knows to the minute exactly what's happening and why, because all the information is out there and it's very easy to obtain, um, much more so than 10 years ago. So I think the fact that the market moves much faster than it ever has before. Um, has changed the way things work. and that's something that I'm thinking a lot about and trying to figure out exactly how to leverage because historically, the way brokers proved their value or whatever other than execution of deals was information and data. And they would hold on to it like it's the Holy Grail or something and they would hide their comps and hide their lease comps and you know not share any information with anyone so that they were the only ones that had it. Now that the information is so obtainable and and travels so quickly, it's almost like you want to get it out the fastest rather than hide it from everyone, Um, which is an interesting flip in how things used to be done in the business. So that's been really fascinating for me to watch.
0: So uh, on that, and I, I think that that ties neatly into social media because you're, you're LinkedIn, uh, you're doing an excellent job at that. I'd have to think you. that you're one of the, the top uh, industrial guys for sure uh, using LinkedIn right now. What What's worked for you? What's like what When you're talking to someone new or whether it's someone on your team or just someone that's curious about it, what would be your general recommendations for someone that wants to start incorporating that into their own business?
1: Um. It's, it's been, it's been great. Um, I really uh, have enjoyed watching how it's like evolved (laughs) from my first video to today. It's pretty insane. Um, I now get tackled at public events, you know, on the weekends with my wife and I, you know, she looks at me and she's like, they know you from LinkedIn. I'm like, I guess so. And it's really cool. And I love it. And I love when people come up to me and say hello and introduce themselves. Um, So, you know, I would say that it's, It's just another arrow in the quiver. It's not the end all be all. It can't be the only thing that you do that'll never work, but it needs to be one of the tools that you use to grow and service existing clients. So when you're putting out valuable content that people want to consume, that's authentic, um, you can grow your audience. And then it's kind of like the whole Gary V like jab, 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 punch, uh, right hook thing where, you know, you add a lot of value and then every once in a while you really need something, you got a vacancy you want to fill or whatever, and then you could hopefully leverage um, to a great extent that network that you've built and, uh, um, and that that follower base that you've built and throw out a post, hey, I've got a vacancy in Sunrise and if anybody needs pharmace- pharmaceutical space, uh, you know, hit me up. And now when I do that, I get a lot of leads and it's not always from the exact the the weird thing about social media is this the business that you get from it it's never from the exact person that needs it it's always from someone who just had lunch with them right or just met with them um and sometimes it's two and three people that they have hung out with over the last two weeks that all recommended you so it's like once and twice and three times removed from the actual person who needs the 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 business or has a problem that you need to solve Um, so that's really been the power of it um it's been incredible it's helped my clients I think in a lot of cases, obtain much better results uh, for their assets and help them become very well known within the market uh, when maybe before they weren't, either individually or, or as a company, um, which is really cool to be able to help them do that. And then also, it's helped us grow our business and, and we've gotten a lot of business from it. And then I've also been able to help a lot of people, like a lot of people call me and they're like, what should I pay off first? My college loans or my credit cards? Like I get all this stuff all the time. Like, Hey, I'm thinking about getting married. Like what kind of questions should I ask Or Like I get the craziest stuff and I get to help all these people because I've made a thousand mistakes and I I know more or less, you know, what to do and what not to do in certain situations. Um, And I get to help people grow their businesses and evolve and, and adapt and change and solve problems for them personally, which I find really rewarding. And it's just super cool to be in a position to be able to do that for people. So just for that alone, it would have been enough.
0: Love it. Uh, I, I completely agree with everything that you said there, and uh, I love the point about it's just another arrow in the quiver. I use a, a different one, and I think there's a lot of football fans uh, out there. I, I use it as social media as having one player on the team, and that one player is helpful. You can't win a game without having all the players on the team, but it's just one player. Uh, I, I've got because I do want to talk about some of the traditional, older school methods and cold calling, door knocking. Uh, but just before we get to that, uh, Gordon joined in. Gordon's got an awesome podcast too, by the way. Uh, if you're interested in doing more podcasting, like which I'd highly encourage you to do, sorry for all the background noise too, uh, I'll read the question quick, and I'll let you answer. Uh, how do you balance keeping your LinkedIn authentic and also professional? That's a great thing to all struggle with.
1: Yeah, so sometimes it's not so easy. I've definitely stepped in, in it a couple of times unintentionally just you know not thinking not being patient and just rushing to do something and i've made big mistakes in some of the posts i've put up i've had to take some of them down because it was just idiotic and never should have done it um but you know when you're doing something that's new and you're sort of trying to be a trailblazer of some kind you know at least within industrial real estate it's not very common to have people opining on things on social media all the time you know, you're gonna step in it, and you just have to take a step back and realize what you did and never do it again. Uh, I only make a mistake once, generally. Um, so yeah, I've definitely made some mistakes. I've gotten into some trouble, you know, over the years for sure, uh, and I regret that. But it was it was well worth it. So you know, I I think you you always have to be authentic. You certainly always have to be professional. Um, you've got to protect your brand and, and whatever company you work for is a brand. That's super important. And I I believe that wholeheartedly. And I don't think, uh, you have to have a balance between the two. I think you can, I think you can be authentic and still be professional. Um, you just have to be careful, uh, especially in a corporate environment. So that sometimes is easier to do than others. Um, and nobody's perfect, you know, and you're going to make mistakes. Just make sure they're not really, really big ones. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah great point on that I, I, if I could add on to that I, I would say that there's definitely a way that you can be professional while still also letting your personality show through without having to offend people so an example that comes to mind I love Lego my kids both uh, play Lego all the time I, some of the adult Lego I absolutely love I think if I can weave in the odd thing about Lego into, into the story or whatever I'm trying to uh, post on social media that's not offensive. Nobody's going to be offended if I'm talking about Lego. It infuses a little bit of that personality, it still keeps it professional. It's when you start going off tangent and perhaps talking about a very controversial issue, mm. politics or whatever it is, that's where you really run the risk of being on a on on a thin uh, edge there. So mm. I, I what what I would say myself and this is kind of my strategy, I've made mistakes too. I've posted things that I was like that was, that was really dumb. I need to take that down right away. Uh, I try to look at it as you almost, you almost just need to have an, an alter ego online where you might be someone a little bit different than you are if you're hanging out with a couple of your close friends. You might be different than if you're hanging out with a group of CEOs. You're going to have different conversations with your group of CEOs that you're hanging out with versus your group of buddies that you might be having a beer and cigars with. So I I think you just need to really cater to that audience. That's what I would say. But you've you've posted so much great stuff on LinkedIn, and and it is genuine. It's authentic. You do let your personality show. It it doesn't come across as offensive as as whatever way. So I'd say, and we've still got more questions, so I'm not wrapping up right now, but I would say at the end, uh, connect with you on LinkedIn, and you could be a playbook uh, into itself on how to uh, post things on social media because uh, everything that I've seen of yours has been spot on. so uh so moving on to the uh to the older school prospecting so arrows in the quiver players on a football team whatever analogy we want to use social media is one of those but there's still a a requirement for a broker to be successful to service their clients to have long-term success in this to do some of those older school methods and i know that you've posted on this before on on cold calling and door knocking so with People might be familiar with some of those posts, but where where do you see that uh, in terms of importance for a new or an experienced broker right now?
1: Yeah, it's, it's critical, especially if you're a new broker getting into the business. Um, you know, sort of growing the pie or generating new business that didn't exist before is crucial. Um, some people are really really good at that, and some people gravitate towards just executing the business. Uh, some people can do both. It really just depends on how you're wired and and what your happiest doing. So uh, you know I'll go old school to new school. So old school way of doing deals is just whatever comes your way, you jump on and you do it. It's like the shiny object sort of thing, um, which is fine. And a lot of people still do that very successfully. So don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking anyone. Um, but at the same time, there's certainly a better way to do things. There's always a better way uh, to do things. And um, I found that allowing people sort of, I'll just speak about my team. So allowing someone to come on and join my team, um, they're not pigeonholed. They immediately are able to do sort of really whatever they want in terms of the deals. Um, They can generate new business. If they feel like they're, they want to sit on top of that business and execute on it, they can do that. Or if they want to just generate it and pass it off so that they can keep generating business because they enjoy doing that more, they can do that. So we're siloed uh, on our team. We have two different branches of the team. My, My business partner, who I'm Built this thing with and who's amazing, Tom O'Loughlin, has uh, captains sort of the leasing side of the business and the sort of the process side of the business. So he sits on the big accounts and he makes sure that the buildings are full and that the clients have everything that they need. And it's very um, service oriented and, and transaction oriented getting all the deals done and the renewals done and everything. On my side of the business, what what I'm sort of uh, um, involved in day to day is business development um, and trying to generate sales as well. So getting new listings for properties for lease, getting new listings for properties for sale, selling things off market and things like that. And then underneath both of us, we have um, our our teammates who are extremely capable and, and well liked and respected in the market and they're doing their respective things. So my guys and gals are cold calling and generating business. His guys and gals are processing and doing really customer support and just staying on top of these projects and making sure that everything goes the way it's supposed to go. So there's no sort of like those traditional peaks and valleys where you're like generating 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 closed generating generating, generating closed. It's like that old traditional way of how things used to be done. Um that for us doesn't exist. It's always business coming in, business getting done and there's no ups and downs. Um, I think that's a unique model that's better than the way it used to be done. and in terms of the generating of the business, it's everything it's it's cold calling, it's speaking on panels, it's doing social media, it's door knocking, it's mailers snail mail is really big because spam is just so crazy. Like, everyone gets so many emails. I went back to the old school, uh, snail mails and FedExes and things like that when it's appropriate. Um, a lot of data mining. Um, so like not only do brokers, you know, get my flyers or my emails and stuff like family members of theirs get it too. Uh, so really just trying to go deep, uh, and making sure that everyone possible is seeing our stuff and that it's being talked about in the market. Um, and and that everyone's aware of it because eyeballs, equal success for for what we're trying to sell here. Um, and then just penetrating every nook and cranny of the market we possibly can. And it's being really consistent about it um, and doing it all the time forever.
0: Where where are you spending the most money right now in terms of marketing? Is is it on that snail mail that like the print and sending it out? Or is there another area where where you're investing more in?
1: Um, I think we spend the majority of our money on third-party online advertising um, which is obviously a huge roi because it's spread to many 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 websites um, and gets in front of a lot of people and then also uh, signage uh, we have just a ton of signs uh, and they're all huge we make really really big ones on purpose uh, so that they get noticed and then we also put lighting on them so you can see them at night so our signs are just monstrous i mean it's almost comical at this point with how big they are. Um, So we spend a ton of money on on those two things specifically. And then we do a lot of 3D virtual tours, um, which take a lot of time and energy um, and and of course money because people don't do things for free. Um, So we do a lot of 3D virtual tours for all of our properties before it was popular when COVID hit. We've been doing them for a long, long time. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of online advertising a lot of um, just tech to be able to see our properties from anywhere in the country or in the world very easily and then uh, a lot of like boots on the ground signage that's probably the three biggest
0: is uh i think i'm just muted there no you're good oh okay um is there one that has more of an roi than the other like is if you had to start from scratch and, and recognizing that you built this impressive machine over 11 years, what would you say to someone that's perhaps doing the bare minimum right now but wants to add something? Is there something that you'd prioritize adding or do you think it's a combination of all of these things that have led to success?
1: Yeah, if you're just doing the bare minimum and you're trying to figure out a way to sort of break to the next sort of level or horizon or whatever you want to call it, um, I think probably the best thing you can do is hit the phones and hit them hard and just try and find opportunities out there. Even if you're not in a place where you can execute on the deal, maybe you can refer to someone um, that's an expert at that specific thing um, and then you know keep 25% of it or whatever, um and then just start getting some things going and just getting some action um a lot of brokers in the market uh I forgot how many there I looked it up once I think there's like 140,000 brokers in the state of Florida or something like that and we we email a lot of them and a lot of them will uh show up on for requirements that they really don't know anything about those those people shouldn't be working those requirements they should refer them to experts and keep a chunk of the deal and keep going um so If you're like struggling right now and you're not able to hit a stride, I would strongly recommend that you change out, you know, how you're doing what you're doing and bring in other people to work on these things. Not only so you can learn how they do it and see it, but so you could just kind of get a a change uh, in in what's happening. Uh, I do that a lot when I'm struggling on a deal and it's just not going the way I want it to. I change out the players. I take myself out. I put someone else in. And nine times out of 10, that works really well. For whatever reason, just wasn't jiving. Don't be afraid to ask people for help or change out the, the, the people or, or make a big change uh, to make sure that things are running as smoothly as humanly possible. Um, so that's what I would
0: say. Great point. And I, I would echo your comments completely, is that there's so much power in having a group that has a requirement. So whether that's someone that needs 100,000 square feet or it's someone that wants to buy a building, a manufacturing building for their business, having that knowledge that someone needs that space is very powerful, but it's only as powerful as that person's ability to get it from A to, to B. And quite right. often, like you said, if that person isn't the right person to do it, that information and, and that right. knowledge is squandered because it can't get from A to B. If it's, it stills, stalls out at, at A, then it doesn't benefit anyone. So it's much better to try and partner with someone uh, or refer it off uh, than to do that. So great point on that. A uh, question came in from Mark. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining in the question as well. Uh, Larry, how do you balance being an advisor to clients and winning assignments? Please describe the threshold of knowing when to push for the business slash exclusive listing.
1: Um. Thank you, Mark, for the question. So, I mean, you know, I don't think there needs to be a balance between being an advisor and winning the assignments. I think those two things go hand in hand. Um, you you always have to be an advisor. You always, you know, have to be honest and forthright. Um, give good, true, valuable information to people so that they can make the best decision. You know, sometimes that doesn't end up in a deal for you, and Honestly, that's the best thing you can do, not just for yourself and your own karma or whatever, but also for the client. Um, they you know, they will really respect you if you tell them, hey, look, like what you're looking for, don't really think it's achievable. In fact, I think there's some opportunities here. You can create additional value and now is not a great time to sell. You should probably pull back, do these few things. If you need help with it, I can help you. If you want to do it yourself, go do it yourself. And then call me when these things are done and you'll have a much better result. If, you, if you're approached by someone where the thing you need to tell them is not to do a deal, then you need to tell them not to do the deal. Um, And hopefully they'll respect that and come back when they're ready. Uh, That happens to me a lot. And it's a great way to, you know, earn someone's trust because it's the right thing to do. Um, And eventually you'll do the deal. And if you're sort of an abundance mindset, um, if you're in an abundance mindset, then um, you just have other things going on. you're not so desperate for a deal. You can very easily have that conversation, and it goes a long way for for everyone involved. And then, in terms of when to push uh, for the business or the listing, it's always um, you should always push for the business and the listing. Your time is valuable. You as a person, you're valuable. There are other things you could be doing with your time, like spending it with family or fishing on a river or something. Um, so you should respect your time, um, and you should. You should be aggressive about where and how you spend your time. Um, And I think, you know, you should always be pushing for the business. And if there's pushback on that um, and there's not something you can do to change it, I think you should move on. Uh, I think you should follow up because the dollars and the follow-ups, as everyone knows. Um, But I really uh, believe that you should let people know you want the business, tell them why you deserve it and how you're going to be successful for them. And if you're conveying a really... um, Powerful, authentic, and valuable message, and you convey trust, and people know that that you're you're the guy or the gal to do the deal. You will get hired, um, and if you're not, just keep pretending like you are until you know what you're doing.
0: <laughs> that's such fantastic advice, Larry, and and I, I love everything you said there because that's for somebody out there that's perhaps struggling with that, and we've all been in that scenario where we've tried getting a listing and perhaps another broker over-promised on what they thought they could get for it. So perhaps it's a sale listing and and you think it's worth $5 million, but another broker goes in and says it's worth $8 million. Do you take on that listing just because it's $8 million or do you just recognize, and I and rhetorical question because I, I know your answer is on this, but do you just recognize that that's not giving them proper advice? And if you follow up with them, give them the best advice you can. You don't need to win every deal. I think that's another misnomer in our industry is that people think that they need to win every deal. But it'd be akin to a, a construction company trying to win every bit a deal that they bid on. It just doesn't happen. It's, you're, you're not destined to win everything that you pitch on. So I, I love the way you describe that. Give the best advice you possibly can. Explain how you're going to do it, why you're capable of doing it, and the results you expect to have. Give them the best advice you can. Uh, and, and put yourself in a position to be successful, but don't force the issue or don't put yourself in a position for not being successful. I'd love the way you described that. That's good. Well, that's going to be a soundbite that, that Wyatt and I are going to pull out on this. And that, w- that will definitely be one that we put in there. Awesome. So I, I, we've tackled marketing you've tackled uh, some of the things you need to do to be successful. I'd really just love to get your thoughts on what a broker needs to know about the industrial market right now. And you're in Florida where you've got a lot of immigration right now, you've got a lot of distribution. I don't know how strong the manufacturing sector is uh, in Florida, so I'm guessing people are probably more focused on that distribution space. But what, what should a broker really be focusing on from their knowledge standpoint? Is it just raw data? So you know what all the sales are, you know what all the leases are, you know everybody that's in the market. Or is there more maybe perhaps macroeconomic? Uh, issues or trends that they should be following. And, and I guess I'd just be looking to you. Let's say you were a, a large property owner. What would you want your broker to be aware of in the marketplace?
1: Sure. Yeah, no, um, very interesting. So I think it, it's it's different depending on what you're doing and how you're trying to do it. If you're capital markets, or if you're advisory and transaction, you're just doing leasing or if you're tenant rep, uh, it could be different for everyone. But I think, you know, I'll just speak to maybe sort of the younger brokers and the junior brokers, because the the older guys and gals don't need my help. They're already super successful. Um, so when it comes to, you know, junior brokers and, and what they need to know, it's I think the first order of business is to define your market. You have to define your market um, and you have to define it in a way that's valuable to you that you can um, sort of build your business plan off of. So what do, what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, go look at whatever your multiple listing services for wherever you're located, CoStar, LoopNet, you know, MLS, whatever is in Canada, um, and, and look at all the historical sales over the last five years. Where have they occurred um, for the asset type that you want to be focused on and in the dollar range that you want to be focused on? Where have they occurred, who's doing them, and why? And how can you get a slice of that um, sort of market share um, I did that probably six years ago when I really wanted to start building out our sales business. Um, it was the greatest thing I ever did. I identified you know three or four or five submarkets, and I've put you know almost ninety percent of my energy into those those submarkets, and it's worked really well. Now I own big chunks of each of them, um, and it's just because I was thoughtful about my strategy, and I wasn't just you know out there with a shotgun just spraying everywhere. I really took a rifle approach, and I really dug deep to try to understand things, um, sort of the why behind it. Um, and then I was able to take market share. Um, so that worked really well for me, it can work for anyone. You just have to be thoughtful about the approach. So no, defining your market, and then once you define it, build a consistent strategy to target all of those owners and the people who are investing in those areas. Get to know them, take them for lunch, send them materials, send them comps, you know, when you find a bit of information that maybe hasn't hit the market yet, make sure they see it first, Um, bring them off market deals. So they feel the love and hopefully can grow their portfolio and you'll get business. It's just, it just takes time. Really. It takes time. It takes a strategy. It takes intent um, and focus and an infrastructure. But if I can do it, I swear anyone can. (laughs)
0: Uh, no, I wouldn't sell yourself short. I, I think people can appreciate just how how genuine and authentic you are. And and you, we talked before that you're also a very hard worker, and you haven't taken a, a full holiday in a long time. This is your 40th birthday. That's, that's a perfect opportunity to take a uh, a holiday, though.
1: Yeah, just a just a one nighter. That's it. Locally. Yeah.
0: <laughs> A question from Bruce. Uh, Bruce, thank you for the question as well. Uh, Where do you see the CRE uh, industrial market going uh, when we enter in a recession?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, I can't speak to the entire commercial real estate. uh, Well, the CRE industrial market. Okay. Got it. So just when it comes, I'm only an expert in industrial. I don't know anything about anything else. You can't ask me retail questions, but when it comes to industrial um, you know, historically, it's fascinating, actually. Historically, as soon as there's a sniffle in the market, uh, the small bay industrial product takes a bath, and it's like total disaster. They're the first ones to go out of business because there's no um, significant sort of savings behind those companies. You know, they're in fifteen hundred feet, twenty five hundred feet, four thousand feet, whatever. Um, those companies are startups, and they're lean, um, and they're trying to build something. So. Historically, those groups go out of business first. Um, but when COVID hit, sort of the opposite happened. Um, and it was a total anomaly. It never should have happened on paper. Um, Small Bay Industrial exploded. Uh, and I think it was probably a combination of people getting laid off um, and starting their own businesses, people wanting to work from home and not in the office, starting their own businesses. And then sort of the boom in um buying which was probably fueled by cash pumped into the system and people needing to do things for their homes because they were spending so much time there so new refrigerators new patio furniture you know new this new that new kitchens whatever everyone started renovating their houses so those things combined created like a perfect storm for small bay industrial which never should have happened it's fascinating to see and rents you know were going up 40 50 a year for a couple of years straight um, that's incredible. So, you know, if there's a recession on the horizon for the United States heading into sort of the end of this year, you know, into next year, it's possible. It's on CNN. You could just Google it. It's like pretty much everywhere. Every newspaper is talking about it. If there is a recession, I think, I think the most resilient will be small bay industrial. I think it'll continue to outperform in every way, shape and form, um, especially in areas where people have, um, disposable income and they're sort of sort of well-located, not in sort of really rough areas with, with, uh, with no sort of um, capital around it, where it's just really lean, uh, sort of in those very tertiary markets, I think that stuff could certainly uh, have problems. But the well-located stuff in major metro- metropolitan areas or areas with the influx of population growth, as you stated, um, will, will outperform and really surprise everyone to the upside. Um, and then in terms of the, the bulk industrial stuff, we're seeing really robust leasing demand across the entire country. We have not skipped a beat. While the volume will be off and more of a sort of back to normal, it still is likely to be historically high leasing velocity and absorption nationally. And while you know the most is under construction right now in the history of the market, um, it's being absorbed just as fast. So it's really, really interesting um, You know, E-commerce sort of dropped off a little bit uh, recently, as you can imagine, after the the flood of of COVID and everything that happened after that. But uh, 3PLs, third-party logistics firms, totally picked up the slack and just started absorbing space like crazy from retailers and everyone else who needed um, third-party logistics firms to handle their distribution networks. So we we really haven't seen a big drop-off. It's more of a back to normal, uh, which I think you can ask any investor that's perfectly fine with them. Uh, especially if we maintain the historical rental rates that have been hit. And uh, even if they don't grow 30% year over year, nobody really needs that. Um, So, you know, nobody generally underwrites more than three to 5% rent growth annually anyway. So it was just cream. Um, But at this point, if if rents grow three to 5%, everyone's gonna hit their underwriting. So leasing velocity remains pretty strong. And if that changes, uh, you know, we'll make sure to let everyone know on our social media feeds.
0: Well said on that. Well, we might just have to do a follow-up interview on this in, in the fall. Uh, I, and I agree with you. Like it, it, The market was so hot for those two or three years that that's not a healthy market either. Whereas it's good for the property owners, it's not good for the tenants. And that's, that's a symbiotic relationship. You can't have an inefficient asset unless you have a happy owner and you have a happy tenant. And when it was that aggressive and the rates were going up so quick and people were losing out on space because they didn't even have the opportunity to do it that's just that creates a strained relationship between the tenant base and the landlord base so even if the market does pull back a little bit as if a recession is a soft landing or whatever the outcome is having a little bit of an increase in vacancy isn't a bad thing just to restore some balance to that market so yeah i I agree it'll be be interesting to see but i think industrial has got the best chance of weathering this storm from an asset class standpoint. On, on that topic though, I'd love to just get your thoughts. Does your plan as a team or you specifically, does it change depending on what the economic conditions are and more specifically, assuming we do go into a, a recession, do you change how you do business or do you just double down on all the things that are working already?
1: Yeah, no, I think I think everyone has or is thinking about tightening their belt. Um, CFOs are, uh, people in their households are, everyone's sort of, you know, watching those credit card statements and, you know, trying to keep them in check, or at least they should be. Um, I think it's a prudent thing to do, whether you're, you know, in a in any state of the market, any any part of the of the economy swing, you know, up or down. It doesn't matter. You should be controlling your finances. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, when when things, you know, like this, uh, when interest rates, you know, go up the way they have, when there's, you know, a couple of bank failures and with some more banks in trouble and there's some uncertainty uh, in the market, you've got a, a you know, a couple of wars going on potentially, um, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of risk in the system. Um that's that's generally the time where corporate America says, Whoa, well, hold on, you know, all, full stop. Let's like take a breath let's uh, you know, maybe not spend so much money that we were gonna allocate to this, that or the other thing. And we've seen some of that. Um, it's also the exact time where I want to spend as much money as my team will allow me to continue to grow and take market share because while everyone is freaking out and all the big firms are sort of like cutting staff and they're canceling internship programs because they're expensive. Um, and other teams are sort of taking maybe more vacations than they would normally because they're not as busy, I want to be hitting it as hard as I've ever hit it because I will take market share. Uh, And that happened in COVID when everyone went on vacation and they went to their vacation houses or they jumped on their boats or whatever. I don't have a vacation house or a boat, (laughs) so I was working. Um, And it was awesome. And we were hugely successful while everyone was kind of taking a nap. So I, I hope to be able to do that again. I hope everyone takes a nap again. And I get to hire a bunch of people who are really, really talented and help them achieve their goals while also achieving ours.
0: Yeah, well said. I love it. I'm so excited just to see your journey as you continue developing that team. You're at 10, go to 12 members uh, and then see how far you can take it after that. Uh, I'd love to continue this conversation sometime in the fall and just get get your outlook to see what things are looking like uh, after we go through this with sell and made and go away mentality and people just perhaps getting into wind down mode. I'd, I'd love to see how your your attitude of just being aggressive and continuing to forge on and of away that market share. I can't, can't wait to keep this conversation going. Uh, so we'll wrap up with that. I do really want to thank you specifically for uh, coming on sharing your time and being patient with me as I'm dealing with all this background noise in the airport. Yeah, you're good. Uh, uh, and I want to thank everybody who tuned in and uh, for the great questions that was awesome all I've got your LinkedIn uh, description LinkedIn in the description we'll also post that as a comment and pin it uh, and I encourage people to reach out to you and one thing I always like to say which is probably peculiar I might be the only person on YouTube doing this but I, I say Give me a thumbs up if you like this video or give me a thumbs down if you didn't like this video. There's a lot Better of background not. noise, so there could be so there could be a lot of reasons to give a thumbs down right now. Uh, but uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. I like any type of feedback. I always like comments as well. Uh, but, Larry, thanks once again for taking the time to, to share that. I, I loved it. That was that hour went by very quickly for me, so I can't think of anything I would rather have done in, in an airport than not having that chat with you. So thank you once awesome. again.
1: Thanks, Chad. You're the man. Appreciate it.
0: Okay. Well, we'll be in touch. I really do appreciate it again, Larry, and uh, have a great day. Well, I hope you got some value from that episode. I always enjoy getting to speak with these guests. Again, if you got any value from this, please leave a review on our Apple or Spotify page and look to catch you in the next episode. Thanks.